0: Um, welcome to the LSE and this evening's event. Uh, idealistic, ostentatious, or indispensable, examining the utopian aims of philanthropy. Um, my name is Tom Hughes-Hallett. I'm the founder of the Marshall Institute for Philanthropy uh, at the London School of Economics. And uh, before I came here, uh, I, for 12 years, ran uh, Marie Curie Cancer Care uh, after uh, a long career in the city uh, and discovered that although it may sound rather strange, investment banking and philanthropy and managing a charity aren't quite as different as you might think, uh, of which more later if you want. Um, and uh, I have a long background in philanthropy having um, my great uncle founded the unit trust movement in this country. In the 1950s, and created the organisation M and G, uh, and donated the entire company uh, into a charitable foundation uh, in memory of his wife Esme, uh, who was killed in the Blitz. And this foundation was called the it was and is called the Esme Fairbairn Foundation, uh, and its chief executive is one of our speakers tonight. So you're very welcome. Um, this is going to be interactive. Uh, it's a game of two halves. Uh, you're going to hear from our four uh, speakers briefly. Uh, and then we want to uh, have a discussion uh, about this important and topical subject uh, involving you. Um, our speakers tonight are a delicious mixture of different backgrounds and types. Uh, Rory Brooks, uh, who is sitting... Uh, well, he's going to raise his hand because he's a very collaborative gentleman and a very effective uh, gentleman. Uh, Rory uh, co-founded uh, the private equity group MML uh, Capital Partners uh, and then discovered uh, that he was a much nicer man than he thought, as was his wife. And Rory and Elizabeth set up the Brooks Foundation, which became the principal benefactor of the Brooks World Poverty Institute uh, at Manchester. Uh, he was a member of the 2012 Government Task Force on Philanthropy in Higher Education uh, and is chairman of the Giving Summit Action Group on Ethics and Education and uh, was awarded CBE for Services to Philanthropy in 2015. Rebecca Eastmond, uh, sitting at the end here, is a philanthropy advisor at J.P. Morgan. She herself has also run... Uh, A charity, the Foundation for Children and the Arts, the Princess Foundation for Children and the Arts, and is on the board of Acumen uh, in the United States, uh, which I also am a partner in, uh, which is an innovative um, provider of philanthropic solutions, and was on the advisory council of Teach First. At the end, Will McCaskill, William McCaskill, associate Associate Professor in Philosophy at Lincoln College, Oxford, and author of a wonderful book, please buy a copy afterwards, uh, Doing Good Better, a, a really seminal work, uh, which I encourage you all to read. I'm reading it at the moment. I've got halfway through it, and I agree with most of it. He has co- co- he's an entrepreneur, having founded the two non-profits, 80,000 Hours, uh, and Giving What We Can, uh, which he may tell you more about later. Sitting there is Caroline Mason, the chief executive of the Esme Fairbairn Foundation, uh, which gives away about $70 million a year. Uh, Before uh, joining Esme, Caroline was chief operating officer at Big Society Capital, which has been a tremendous innovator in using different types of finance uh, to achieve altruistic purposes. So does philanthropy create utopia? That's what we're talking about tonight. And before I hand over to the speakers... I just want to tell you a story that is true and happened 10 days ago uh, in the hills in the eastern side of Myanmar, where I was trekking with my wife. And we were, it really made me think about tonight and about what I do and what we're trying to do here at the LSE, at the Marshall Institute for Philanthropy and Social Entrepreneurship. We, wa- we were walking through the hill, and suddenly I heard the most wonderful sound of laughing, shouting, people having fun, high quality of life. And we walked over a little rise and we came down to a river where an entire village at about 12.30 in the morning, by which time it was too hot to farm any longer, were washing their hair, washing their clothes and gathering round the village pump, if I can be slightly British for a moment, to have a really good gossip. And everyone was having a good time. They embraced us, and we then walked up with our interpreter up the hill a long way. I was practically dead by the end of it. And the ladies, who, gentlemen, were carrying the heavy weights, uh, had five-litre petrol cans in which they were taking the water from the river back up to the village. And I was made to carry them and nearly break my back. None of these people were hungry. None of these people were unhappy. And they were having a good time. When we got up to the village, we found a total range of water pipes that had been installed by an NGO with a generator, completely unused. And I asked the villagers through the interpreter what they thought about this gift, and they said, we didn't want it. We didn't ask for it, and no one told us it was coming. It just arrived. And I said, what do you think about it? And they said, it would have destroyed our community completely. Our children would have become rather larger than they are and we would never have communicated together as a village in the way we do at lunchtime every day. And it made me wonder which is the utopia, the utopia that the NGO hoped, foolishly, to create and so obsessed with modern thinking on social entrepreneurship that they were going to charge the villagers a small amount of money in order to ensure that the generator could be sustainable, but a small amount of money in a Burmese village is a huge amount of money, and so that was the end of the NGO's gift. So with that as a parable or a background, I'm going to hand over to Caroline to kick us off.
1: Hello, and um, thank you very much for coming today. Um, when, Sir to- when Sir Thomas More, sorry, published his book Utopia, that's 500 years ago, um, he described an imaginary island with perfect social and political systems, sort of an, a, a perfect state of things. Um, the, der- the derivation of philanthropy actually lies in the sort of practical and, benevol- and benevolent love of humanity, um, in the sense of caring, nourishing, enabling, and um, enhancing what it is to be very human. Um, uh, but yet philanthropy has become synonymous, really, in the last sort of um, while with gifts of money and time by the wealthy to those considered worthy of their benevolence. And I wonder if that's what we mean by utopia 500 years later, or is it time for a new model of philanthropy for the 21st century? Um, and what might a new model look like? Um, Now, is it more akin to an ordinary person who, with little time and even less money, still finds time to run their local community centre on behalf of the community as a whole? Is that a philanthropist? Um, And what happens in a world of growing inequality where the sort of blurring between state and private and the charitable sector is happening, um, where technology is transforming the very essence of what human interaction is, and how can we view philanthropy from perhaps a different lens? It's something that we've been doing um, at ESME, worrying about or thinking about at ESME. Uh, we know we're going to be here for quite a long time. So, um, and so, what we've done at ESME is <coughs> invert the telescope and seen and try to look at um, at philanthropy from the perspective of those that we're there to serve, um, for those that are disenfranchised and disempowered. Um, and those that spend all their day working with those people who are disenfranchised and disempowered. Um, and the words that we came up with are actually three words. They're not um, uh, indispensable. Um, I've got the three words are uh, Ostentatious. Ostentatious.
2: <laughs> or indispensable, uh, idealistic.
1: Idealistic. Um, they were empowering, they were unassuming, and they were ingenious. And I'm just going to just explain what what we mean by those three things, and just give some quick examples of the kind of things that we do and why we do them. Um, First of all, we're about change, not about amelioration. So we think about what 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 could the world look like differently? How could it be better? Um, And in terms of empowering, we think about giving voice to the voiceless, holding power to account. And to your point, Tom, believing that people um, are are best at designing their own solutions. Um, And examples of these are an organisation called Uprising that works with... It's a youth leadership organisation run for um, 16 to 25-year-olds and by 16 to 25-year-olds from unrepresented communities around the country um, who are encouraged to create community action plans and um, are told that they're not invited to the tables of power. They are, have a place at the tables of power, and they should be presumptive about that and, um, and take their place there. Um, Client Earth, um, I don't know if any of you have heard of Client Earth. It's been in the news quite recently. It's a not-for-profit law firm that uses the law, uses strategic lit- litigation in the environmental space to take governments to court um, to hold them to account. Um, and recently, have won the c- have have won the battle in London about the clean air in in London, and they use what is in law to to hold governments and corporates to account. And my one of my favourite is the Funky Llama Festival, um, um, in, by the Ply- um, which is facilitated by the Plymouth Royal Theatre, um, which run festivals, club nights, and events, um, which are run by, performed and designed by people with learning d- disabilities. Um, who take control and run and run events for themselves? Un- un- unassuming. Well, we believe that actually we're facilitators and enablers of other people's potential, um, and we want to be patient and willing to learn and have our ideas challenged. One of the things that st- has really struck me—I was quite new to philanthropy two years ago—was how um, I, my preconceptions were utterly challenged day in, day out. Um, about assumptions that I had made about the state of things um, and um, we, we worry about legitimacy we worry about our, our place and how we make sure that everything that we fund is, has the voice of people at its heart um, and that we learn from that and that we also um, provide unrestricted funding, we, have, we, we trust the organisations that we fund um, an example would be um, so we've worked a great deal in the food, in, in, in the sustainable food industry and how we can use the power of the supermarkets where, where originally we thought we would not engage with the supermarkets but actually through some of our foundations we now have um, the, 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 um, the wonky veg box which, are, which is now really tackling food waste and allowing people to buy um, food from supermarkets for £3.50 a box, healthy food. I um, work with FGM over the last seven years, um, and with two other foundations. And when Angelo, Angelina Jolie and um, William Hague stood up at the Girl Summit and announced all of these things that that, that had happened, that has, that they all happened because Fat Foundation, three, three foundations had quietly been funding campaigning work, PR work around FGM for the last seven to eight years. Do we think our work is done? Absolutely not. We, we we have to carry on until there's been a you know a shift change in behaviours as well as legislation. And then finally, ingenious. We need to be risk-taking. We need to be multifaceted. We need to back the unorthodox and the unfashionable. Um, you know, um, I was conscious, and just in summary, you know, I was doing some research work around the suffragettes, and um, um, and was looking at the at the anti-suffragette <coughs> propaganda. Um, and it was absolutely vicious, OK? It was absolutely vicious, the way in which uh, the propaganda machine really, really was under threat, um, sort, of, sort of the, the orthodox thinking. Um, and, all people, and all women wanted was the vote. seems inconceivable now that there would be such a backlash against that. And so what will be the things now that we're being challenged on, that really challenge our orthodoxies, that in 50, 100 years' time people will say can 't believe you even you couldn 't believe is it the whole area of social investment and social finance and the idea that sound good risk free investment has to has to incorporate more than market dogma and, and profit could, could be that is that the thing that 's staring us in the face? Is it the idea of renewable energy when people say you had all this renewable energy free there to be to be to be captured and used um, and you you knew the world was falling was in, in danger so So, I think we need to be absolutely open. We need to challenge ourselves. And I think the 21st century philanthropy is about engaging with communities, for communities, um, and really looking at how really important change for the next century happens. Thank you. Thank you, Caroline.
0: We're going to hear from all four of our speakers and then move into discussion. So next, Rory.
2: Now, good evening, everyone. <clears throat> Thank you, Tom, for your uh, kind introduction. And I'd also like to express my thanks to Saskia Greenhouse, who's sitting there, of the Centre for Social Justice, and very recently a graduate of the LSE, who has helped me prepare these remarks. Um, I'm going to take a slightly more practical view And I would like to put philanthropy and giving in this country, first of all, in the context of the other great streams of generosity in Britain. Um, First of all, giving in this country has been in the order of 10 to £13 billion a year for the last 10 years, and I think the last recorded number was about £11 billion. It's a prodigious number and something that Britain can be proud of. But the great expression of British generosity is not expressed through uh, personal giving, The great expression is through the welfare state. And just to want to put things in context, um, the pension budget in this country is approximately 150 billion pounds. The welfare budget is approximately 110 billion pounds. That's over a quarter of a trillion pounds between the two of them. And if I just stop there, leaving aside health, education, overseas aid, those two numbers equal about 14% of GDP, and about 34% of all government expenditure. In contrast, in 1900 the number was about 2%, and even in 1950 the number was about 5%. For the 65 million people in this country, that's £4,000 per person, and if you take a simplistic view that about half the people are on the contributing side and half the people on the receiving side, that's £8,000 per contributor and £8,000 per recipient. £8,000, is about 20% of GDP per capita. Um, Despite all the vast political rhetoric that I've heard over my lifetime uh, as a person growing somewhat older, um, government spending has shuttled between the barrow bands of between about 37% and 44% of GDP, no no matter what political oratory you've been hearing. But it's unquestionably true that uh, this... um, what was it a social experiment that started primarily after the war is the grand social contract of my lifetime and is, um, is the great expression. All that's really happening is how much uh, is what is happening between that 37 and 44 percent and how is that allocated. The second great strand of British giving, uh, the statistics are rather harder to come by, and I think it is. Insufficiently recognized, and that is the contribution of volunteering people giving their time, their energy, and their expertise. Um, we did find some numbers that say that the, the, the general idea is that there 's about two point one billion hours being given by British, by people living in this country, and for some reason, that seems to be valued at about twenty three billion pounds, which I think at eleven pound an hour I think everybody's getting a real bargain. Um, this relates to non relative care, so not the care of your relatives. But even if you value it at its poor rate, that is still two times the amount of charitable giving in this country and constitutes effective altruism. That, is it altruism in action, not altruism by the bank account. And Will, you you are very good at starting to quantify certain areas of philanthropy. We may coin the phrase philanthropometrics for you. I think if you could spend some time really promoting uh, the value of volunteering, Uh, and put it on a par with the financial contribution, that would be a great service. Um, My my speaking colleagues will go through much more thoroughly than me the the benefits of giving in a society, but in short that they are reach, nimbleness, effectiveness, risk-taking, freedom of choice, Um, and it's the hallmark, I think, of a civilized society and presupposes that certain other things are in place, peace, prosperity, built institutions, a functioning society. And I think if you see... um, the, uh, the third sector and civil society declining in a country, it's a, it's a litmus test that something is wrong. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the state of the uh, third sector here, and you can take a view as to whether this is more or less utopian or dystopian. Um, my other speakers will be much more uh, eloquent on the subject of the vast explosion of interest and activity that's taken place in philanthropy over the last 10 to 20 years. Some of the people who have contributed that change are sitting right here in front of you. But I think the key drivers have been three parts. First of all, obviously, the use of social media. Secondly, the application of technology to meet needs, uh, human and otherwise. And thirdly, the bringing of business principles to bear on civil society. And this is not an uncontroversial proposition. Um, But the drive towards efficiency, bringing business practice and principles to the charitable sector is something that has changed a lot. And also the innovation of financial techniques, where you've gone from grant-making over here to full economic return over there and some fusing of the two. This is an as yet incomplete experiment, but it is here to stay, and the social enterprise phenomenon is part of our lives. But this is two-way traffic. This is not just business basically trying to help charities, but there is a reverse flow which is the idea of, of, of civil society and the idea of community is permeating business life. And I'm very refreshed to see when I see people who are younger than me, which is the, these days the vast majority of people, when they start businesses, it's not just a profit motive. It's what's my, what is my responsibility to my stakeholders, my community, uh, to the people around me, to my suppliers – and how does this business make a broader contribution than just making money? That is also here to stay, and it's going to create, a, I think, a long-term blurring of the distinction between uh, the, the charitable world and the business world, uh, which is going to make um, regulation quite entertaining. Um, on the dystopian side, I have to say, from my point of view, civil society right now feels like a community under siege. Sharp or poor practice by a few is, risk, is a, by a few risks tainting the many. What Lord Hodgson called the danger to the charity brand is evident and in front of us. And we have taken the charities to be a bit like doctors and policemen, one of the very few remaining institutions in which we have trust, and that is in peril. As a result, regulations are on the way. The Etherington Report, a model of a government report if ever I saw one, is now talking about the introduction of a uh, uh, fundraising protection service where you, 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 everybody can opt out in perpetuity of ever being called by a charity again. It is self-evident that people often give when they're prompted. We do need some protection for people in society. I don't want my 95-year-old mother to be called too often, frankly, but the fact is that we need to strike a balance, and it's being worked out. The details of this are being worked out as we speak and the danger is, on the one hand, you have a very, very blunt instrument, and on the other hand, you have a Swiss watch that can't tell the time. So you have to be quite careful to be worked out. Um, and this regulatory framework is quite complicated. I'm, I'm grateful to Adrian Beany who prepared this for me, of the Moore Partnership. English charities regulated by the Charity Commission. Uh, universities Regulate, who are exempt charities, regulated by the Higher Education Funding Council, except, of course, for the Oxford and Cambridge Colleges, who are, of course, regulated by the Charities Commission. Uh, national Muse- or the arts organisations are regulated by the Charity Commission, but the national museums are regulated by the Department of Culture, Media and Sport. The Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew are regulated by DEFRA, uh, furthering English Further Education <laughs> Colleges by Business Information Skills. The Academies, for example, the Sixth Form Colleges by the Department of Education. Welsh charities, including the universities, are regulated by the Charity Commission and Scotland and Ireland have their own regulator. Confused? You should be. And so this is a dense, complex environment from both ends and I haven't even got onto the Institute of Fundraising, Well, you don't want to hear more. There is just a lot of actors in this and I haven't even got to those two major actors which is HMRC, Her Majesty's Revenues and Customs, as Expressing the Will of HM Treasury. So we live in a complex and dense environment here, and uh, it's very difficult. There is a a knockout case, I think, for simplifying this in some way. At the other end of the telescope, the Charities Commission has 162,000 active charities, 80,000 sub-threshold charities, who have such a vast range of activities, it's terribly hard to see how a one-size-fits-all policy uh, can work. Um, And uh, so, uh, in short, as a result of this, charitable giving is forecast by the proponents of these regulations actually to go down, and quite substantially, at a time when the government is still struggling to curb deficits and is expecting more of civil society. So, in short, Britain is a generous nation, but still not generous enough. And John Nixon has written eloquently on the subject that, People of means who give, give generously, but a drastically insufficient number of people of means give at all. So, in conclusion, because I've almost certainly overrun my time, two points stand out. If we don't remember that it's all about the beneficiaries, we've lost the plot. And if in the middle of all this fusing of business efficiency and all this regulation, we run the risk of driving... The Passion Out of Compassion. Thank you.
3: And Rebecca.
4: Hello. So, in my day job, I work with individuals, philanthropists, who are looking to see what they can do with their means, their time, their energy, their expertise to make the world a better place. And so, kind of using that, I wanted to talk about philanthropists, Um, and a little bit about their ability to create utopia of the kind envisaged by Thomas More, what has been tried in the past and what the results have been. And secondly, revealing my views a little bit, why philanthropy in the real world is much messier than a utopian vision might envisage. So I started off by thinking what it might mean to create a utopia, um, the perfect state of things, as Caroline said, and realise I don't know anybody, nobody i work with in the 20 years I've been working in philanthropy has ever tried to do that. So I look back a little bit at history. I mean, philanthropy is fundamentally about individual and small group efforts to improve social and environmental realities. Um, and historical examples of people who tried really hard to do that might be Robert Owen, who I think is the the biggie, Um, possibly George Cadbury, maybe George Peabody, who's one of the founders of the bank that I work for. Robert Owen is an interesting guy and somebody who's left deep marks on British society. He started out as an enlightened capitalist in Scotland in the late 18th, early 19th century. He created decent working conditions for his 2,000 or so employees in Lanarkshire where he had his mills, and gave them positive incentives for good performance. It worked really well. The way he dealt with children, because remember, a lot of his workforce came from poor houses. Some kids were as young as five or six. Uh, The way he dealt with children was particularly revolutionary. He can be considered the the founder of the way that we think a lot about childcare in the UK. He believed firmly that human character is formed early. Um, and that good treatment and good early years education can completely transform a child's outcomes. A lot of people were very grateful to him. He was hugely successful um, economically as well as as a philanthropist, and the result of his humane approach to business certainly improved his economic returns for his shareholders. So far, so good. Then he moved on to plough his fortune, all of it more or less, into the creation of true utopian communities of the kind that Thomas More outlined he started in america building working communities um, of about a thousand people per in a kind of four to six kilometers squared every family would have its private apartments but the work and the enjoyment of results would be experienced communally Childcare would be shared the model didn't change very much during his life um, you know mainly it'd be agricultural but you'd be able to do a whole bunch of other things Um, And then the idea was that these townships would increase in number. So you'd have unions of them, federated. See, it's very Thomas More. Circles of tens, hundreds, thousands, until eventually the whole world would be involved in this common interest. The problem with any utopian community, of course, is it doesn't exist in isolation but as part of society. And Robert Owen's communities fail completely and they failed because the world's complicated and other people didn't have quite the same high ideals that Robert Owen did. Um, uh, Robert Owen's sons categorised community members as a heterogeneous collection of radicals, enthusiastic devotees to principle, lazy theorists and a sprinkling of unprincipled sharpers. (laughs) (laughs) The whole thing wasn't a complete failure. Owen has influenced generations of philanthropists, since and what remained of his reforming zeal in the end was the cooperative movement, which I think is a big tick. But as an experiment in using philanthropy to create utopia, of course it was a disaster. George Cadbury was less utopian in his aims, but he did build high-quality housing and a village green in Birmingham. There's still a market premium on houses in the Bourneville estate. Um, and his idea was, you know, if you have happy, happy, healthy surroundings, you've got a better opportunity of a happy family life. That's basically it the practical good he could do was still limited because Bourneville exists in the greater community of Birmingham. Um, the Bourneville trustees are working very hard to hang on to its unique character now. In recent years, they've found themselves scrubbing graffiti, fitting security mesh to the windows of estate state public buildings. You know, that's the reality of trying to do something. Um, so I'm not a big believer in the ability of philanthropists to create stable, long-lasting utopia. The reality is that both um, my co-panelists have said previously, philanthropy is about trying to use a small lever to move really big problems. It's extremely difficult. The creation of a utopia requires everything to work well, all at once, and assumes that people aren't fragile or self-destructive at all. Everyone behaves rationally. Uh, The play pump example that Will gives in his brilliant book is a great example of how good intentions can lead to dreadful outcomes because of a utopian vision that isn't grounded in reality. In the real world, problems are big, messy, and interconnected. So when I was thinking about people I could talk about who might be involved in creating utopia, and there weren't any, people I work with are doing things like trying to create sustainable fisheries. Um, On a small scale, how can I do that, and how can I support the the families that live in that community? How can I take off-grid energy to scale in the developing world? What are the ways that we can do that? How can I find the children who are most at risk in troubled families and put a red flag on them before anything bad happens? They're big, complicated, messy problems that don't exist in isolation. Philanthropy done well certainly makes life better for both those giving and those receiving. But fundamentally, philanthropy involves learning and learning about messy problems and things you probably really rather not know about very much and things that are deeply sad as well as things that are deeply difficult. Focusing on the things you can change, the little things you can change, and keeping on adjusting your approach until you really do manage to make a difference. There's a lovely Desmond Tutu quote, um, which I like, Um, And he said, do your little bit of good where you are. It's those little bits of good put together that overwhelm the world. And if it's going to work, philanthropy has to have its feet on the ground and it's got to concentrate on making as much difference as it can with the means that it has available. If you want to make a difference, honestly, utopian visions will at best confuse you and at worst lead you to make things worse.
0: Very good.
5: thanks so much for that Rebecca so um, I'll talk a little bit about Effective Altruism which is the philosophy that I helped to develop that's the basis of my academic work but also behind the non-profits that I set up and its idea is to use evidence and reason in the pursuit of trying to do the most good possible uh, where that's understood as helping to um, go about producing the flourishing of all helping to improve as many people's lives and buy as much as possible and to illustrate this, we can consider a couple of stories. Um, I won't talk about the play pump because we've already had some water related disasters um, so far. But instead of a social programs, very popular in the US, it's called Scared Straight. And the idea is you take juvenile delinquents, real kind of trouble kids, they've committed some crimes. And in order to scare them out of a life of crime, you take them to a prison and they go on a tour for several hours. Uh, all the prisoners taunt at them, jeer at them often there's things like rape threats and the idea is that uh, the kids will be you know, so terrified of what life is like um, within prison that they won't want to commit crimes again and of course this is a US program so all of it's televised and <laughs> <laughs> it's now in its seventh season uh, with several million viewers um, on every single episode Uh, Now, this program has been studied very extensively, in fact. There have been many um, high-quality studies, randomized controlled trials, to look at what is the effect of this program. And despite how popular it is, the fact that it's rolled out across many states, um, thousands of children go through this every year, it's not only the case that this program doesn't have any positive effect. It's, in fact, harmful. So children are more likely to commit crimes after going through the scared straight program Than they would have otherwise been, and we've known this for many years. Yet the programme keeps going. And in fact, according to one independent think tank, they estimated that for every dollar spent on scared straight programmes, society bore the cost of two hundred and thirty-one (laughs) dollars in increased crime rates. Um, And it kind of is funny. It's kind of, um, but it's also kind of insane. Like for the. You know, murders have happened, crimes have been committed, thefts have been committed, people have spent their entire lives in prison because of this program. Um, So that's not a case of effective altruism. Uh, But here's a case that is, which is the eradication of smallpox. So we don't often think about this now because it's four decades ago. In 1973, we managed to eradicate smallpox. In the 20th century, smallpox killed 300 million people. That's more than all wars, all political famines, all genocides, and all terrorist acts combined, even once you take into account the two world wars, the gulags, um, the Great Leap Forward. Uh, So it killed more people than war by a significant margin, yet we managed to eradicate it. And in doing so, we've saved the lives of something like 120 million people since then. And yet the program was actually very cheap, only cost about $1.4 billion in the money of the time, um, making for... A cost per life saved, as it were, of about $12, astonishingly cheap. Um, And in fact, it was so effective that if you look at the totality of foreign aid spending and assume that none of it did any good at all, that all of it was wasted, entirely squandered, except insofar as we eradicated smallpox, you'd still have a cost per life saved of about $70,000, still an exceptionally good use of money. So there's this vast discrepancy between the very best programs, those like smallpox, Um, Most programs, which don't really achieve anything, so um, the best estimate we have is that about 75% of social programs when tested are found to have no impact at all. Some are are harmful. That's definitely the small minority, like 3. There's a huge discrepancy between the majority of projects and those that are very most effective. And so effective altruism is about trying to find um, those very most effective projects. And a kind of story for people who evidenced this is Michael Kramer and Rachel Glenister, two development economists. And they were working in Kenya, and they thought, okay, we want to help improve people's lives. How can we best do this? And so they thought, well, distributing textbooks. Most of the classes um, that they were encountering only had one textbook uh, for the whole class. So you think, obviously, if we provide extra textbook, textbooks, then educational outcomes will improve. But being economists, they didn't just kind of ramp up and do this. They thought, well, why not test this? We can look at 14 schools, um, distribute extra textbooks in seven of them, use the other seven as a control group and see what impact does this actually have. And they found that distributing textbooks, despite being what would seem like common sense, absolutely obvious thing to do, obviously going to make people's lives better, actually had no effect at all. Um, Next, they tried flip charts, another um, instructional material. Um, Again, had no effect. They tried reducing class sizes. Yet again, absolutely no effect. Um, So then on a whim, they tried deworming. So distributing albendazole, a drug that was developed in the 50s, uh, distributing it en masse to children who suffer from intestinal worms. So again, this isn't something that's very well known. It doesn't kill as many people as HIV or AIDS or... Uh, tuberculosis and malaria, but it does, make, does affect about a billion people worldwide. It does make people very sick, um, and it can be treated exceptionally cheaply. And so they tested this, and they found absolutely outstanding effects in terms of increasing rates of school attendance. And then when people were followed up with 10 years later, they found significant impacts both in terms of number of hours that these people were now working and on their earnings as well. And so they discovered this thing that doesn't even seem like an education intervention was actually one of the most effective ways of um, boosting school attendance and um, improving people's lives in the long term. So the idea of effective altruism is trying to find, use evidence and use high quality reasoning so that we can work out, are we funding things that are more like deworming, less like um, scared straight? And often the focus is on philanthropy, on how you can do good with your money, um, And that was the basis for one of the effective altruist organizations I co-founded, which is Giving What We Can, which makes some recommendations on these top charities, encourages people to give there, and encourages people to give at least 10% of their income. Uh, Some people have gone further than this because the case for the sort of impact you can have is so strong. So I've pledged to give everything I earn above what's now about £24,000 per year. I hope that to be the majority of my income over the course of my life. Um, it seems like quite an easy decision, though, when it's, you know how much good you can do. Um, that's the focus on money, but there's also a kind of time aspect as well. So the other nonprofit, 80,000 Hours, gives advice on how you can use your time. So 80,000 Hours is typically the amount of working time you have over the course of your career. Um, how can you use that as effectively as possible to make the world a better place? And we provide recommendations and advice on how young people can use their career to do more good. Um, and now we've got kind of 100 local groups around the world we've um, between the kind of people pledging uh, on the order of 600 million dollars in pledged donations so it's definitely something that I think is like hitting a nerve insofar as people I think are often frustrated um, by ineffectiveness in charity and ineffectiveness in trying to do good um, and so the topic is utopianism and I think I'm going to agree quite a lot with Rebecca here but um I think often just attempts to do good have a lot, often have too much utopianism. So, um, you know, you can deworm a child, and people might say, oh, well, deworming, that's never going to solve the problem of poverty. And the answer is, yeah, of course it's not. If you're donating a few thousand pounds per year, you're never going to solve the problem of poverty. It's insane. If you were donating $100 billion a year, you wouldn't be able to solve the problem of poverty. But you're making a very big difference for one person. And so instead, rather than thinking, well, what would an ideal world like? look like and then let's you know do the biggest gamble to try and get there. Instead, effective altruism is about thinking, well, where are we at the moment? What is everyone else doing? And how can I have the biggest impact on the margin? Um, what's neglected? What's going to be the biggest next step we can make? So in general I'm a kind of opposed to this strain of utopian thinking, but I guess I do indulge a little bit in utopianism of my own. So I think for most of human history, we lived in the Dark Ages. Um, we lived in this pre-scientific period. Um, and that really meant that life sucked. So um, the lights we have now, the heating, the technology, the fact that I'm able to speak to you on a PA system, that was all as a result of developments in science, developments of technology, that all originated in the Enlightenment. Um, change of perspective, such that we actually had this methodology for the pursuit of truth. Um, and I actually think that with respect to the pursuit of good, that's the pursuit of making a, a good outcome for the world, um, I actually think we're probably in similar dark ages at the moment. And so the utopian vision that I have is that people all around the world start to really think about using their time and money as effectively as possible to, you know, in, in, to promote the flourishing of all, and using evidence and reasoning in that way, um, doing for the pursuit of good what the Enlightenment did for the pursuit of science. So that's my little bit of utopianism. We'll maybe end there. <laughs>
0: Very good. So um, before I hand over to the audience, I'm going to ask a couple of questions. Um, get yours ready. Uh, I'm taking my jacket off. I'm ready for anything now. Uh, and uh, and um, thank you so much uh, to our speakers for those excellent uh, introductory thoughts I think perhaps. uh, By the way, who's read Utopia? Honestly. (laughs) That's two more than I thought. Three, sorry, I didn't see your hand. (laughs) I haven't, by the way. (laughs) It's
6: amazing. One of these little books
0: that we all talk about, but uh, never quite got our minds around. can I going, going back there to this concept of utopianism? I I, I I'm, and I'm going to start um, with our last speaker, if I may. Um, when I was in Burma, I thought about this a lot because uh, it's a very happy society uh, and it's a very frightened society. Uh, they're frightened that progress will destroy a way of life that they've come to love. Um, so you say the Enlightenment was a great thing. But what was it like to be pulled into the urban conurbations of the early 19th century? Uh, was, it, was it such a utopian, wonderful form of progress? And are some of us trying to harp back to pre-enlightenment when perhaps rural communities around the world were much stronger and where faith perhaps played a bigger part in holding communities together Uh, and the whole concept of looking after each other was so strong Um, and I wonder if that's something that some philanthropy is trying to recreate and is that such a bad thing which of you, let's start with you, by the way I'm a great believer in panels not feeling they've all got to answer every question
5: uh. Uh, yeah so I mean would you like to hand out the mic thanks uh, yeah, so on whether the Enlightenment was a good thing, with economic progress is a good thing, I mean, my answer is just clearly and firmly yes. Um, like, I think it's maybe a bad thing for like um, certain groups, like, you could say it was bad for the environment, certainly bad for uh, animals that we raise in factory farms, but for humans, it's undoubtedly been good. And if you don't think that, then it's probably just you've been too accustomed to just how good yeah. our lives are now. Yeah. Um, like, the fact that we don't die age 21 on average, the fact that we don't have to go for days without food, um, the fact that we have that easy access to clean running water. For most of the humans that have ever existed, those would have been the highest possible luxuries, let alone the fact that, you know, I can go on my phone and watch the best rendition of Mozart that the world has ever seen um, just at the click of a button. Um, that wasn't even on the kind of table. And so... I mean, I think in the case of then Myanmar, um, I mean, there might be things that are lost as well, but I think if you're economically empowering people, by definition, they're choosing what they want to do. And if it's the case that they're making certain trade offs, I mean, environmental trade offs are the classic case of this, where um, as countries develop economically, the environment gets worse and then it gets better, things like air pollution and so on. And that's so, because, to begin with, you just are willing to take that. I'm going to
0: stop you there. So let, I'm going to ask other panellists. I mean, we, we, we know that 33 million people in this country volunteer every year, um, at least once. Um, but uh, when I, I recently on, announced on the Today programme, in November last year, mm-hmm. that I wanted to see us creating this country, something called Help Force, to support a failing national health service. Uh, and I was heavily criticised. Uh, for suggesting that volunteerism could replace the state and that we mustn't do anything that threatens the state by offering volunteer-based, community-based support for vulnerable people. Caroline, Rory, Rebecca, does that surprise you that I was criticised and was I right to be criticised?
1: Uh, uh, oh, no, well, uh, <laughs> I, I think one of the things um, that worry, I think, um, is this issue of legitimacy. I think, and what is, what I mean, these things have been hard won and hard fought for. So, what are things that are fundamentally universal democratic rights, and what are the things that are a philanthropic gift? And, and subject to the whims of people changing their mind and suddenly deciding, actually, I don't want to give to that anymore. I, I'll do something else. And I think that's a really, <coughs> really important question that I, I don't, That we are being forced to face now. Um, and I think there is a danger that volunteering or philanthropy and this idea of what is a democratic human right... It, it, it's a different. There's a line there, and where does that line sit? Um, because volunteering does does imply a gift. It implies that people choose to do something. Mm-hmm. And they, if they could they to. could choose not to do something. A philanthropist can choose one year to fund something, and then the next year choose not to fund it. And so, I I, I think there is this idea of where and you know if you think about vaccines, you know the, you know, the state has played a huge part in making sure that when something gets discovered it gets distributed to everybody there is a machinery that works which is universal and for the public benefit um and for all its strengths and weaknesses you know i walk down the street and i my you know the streets are clean i have good lighting i have a judicial system i have those not because i'm rich not because of anything i have those as an intrinsic right and uh, I, you know, that's an area I think that is. I, I, I think that's where the worry comes from. Yep. Should you have been berated for it? Of course not. Yeah, of course <laughs> but, I should.
3: But
1: but it's my but, job, uh, but. But, but yeah. I think at the heart of that, yeah. I think that's that's the nub of it. Maybe at the heart that where does where does philanthropy begin and mm. end, and where do democratic rights begin <laughs> and end? Can
4: I add to that? Please. There's um, you know, we and we uh, we're, we're constantly making these decisions about what what we believe. we we pay our tax and the state provides and what the state doesn't provide. So the state provides us with emergency health care and generally doesn't support our palliative care. So, you know, I would say that the right to not be in pain is Mm. also a fundamental human right. Mm. And and it's an accident of history that that's grown out of philanthropy Mm. rather than... The health service. So, where we draw these lines, I think, needs constantly yeah, redrawing and looking at. Um, there's also there's a link point, um, which is that if you were inventing the health service now, or any aspect of the welfare state, would you do it in exactly the same way? Mm-hmm. And that's not about replacing staff mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. volunteers, which is a, a, a thing that I kind of, you know, th- there are lots of worries mm-hmm. about doing that. If you were looking at creating a health service now, how much would you focus on preventative care? How much would you use technology that didn't mm-hmm. exist in 1946? You know, as Will said, we have had seen so much technological innovation over the past, well I mean it kind of speeds up doesn't it, that's Moore's law, so you know more and more and more and more and more of it. and. Our systems, our national systems, aren't built to integrate it as well as they could be. And I think that maybe is where um, the state and private actors can have good conversations.
0: Thank you. Rory, can I ask you a question on your your, your, your subject of volunteering? Mm. Um, and for those of us uh, who volunteer, which will be many people here, I'm sure, I think this the point you made about not taking the passion out of compassion uh, will resonate particularly in the context of volunteering. Um, I've spent today with AmeriCorps, which is uh, an American organization that many of you may be familiar with, uh, where 50 applications for every job going, they're unpaid jobs, Uh, they receive a small remuneration in the States to support uh, kids in schools and in the health system. They're trying to get going here, but they can't because of the new uh, minimum wage regulations that mean that trying to recruit people from places like the London School of Economics to actually get involved in volunteering, gain the experience, is really is too difficult. Um, do you think that volunteering or encouraging people to volunteer is taking advantage of vulnerable people?
7: <laughs>
2: Um, <clears throat> you mean the, do you mean the people who are vulnerable are the people who are the recipients of voluntary action, or do you mean the volunteers themselves?
0: Well, we seem to be in a very difficult position now in this country, in
2: sharp contrast to the States, where
0: if we volunteer, we're not really allowed to do anything because it will breach health and safety if we do, firstly. And secondly, that unless we're remunerated almost to a minimum wage level we can't volunteer anyway, which is beginning to be a real threat. So do we need protecting as volunteers? And we're talking about
2: utopia and philanthropy and intelligent people. Do we need this protection? (coughs) Well, I I think that um, all people who are engaged in an activity uh, on behalf of others, be it employed or not employed, Mm. uh, need certain protections about the environment in which they work and preferably a code of practice around how they work, Mm -hmm. especially when that action, employment or voluntary action, um, uh, is work that is engaged in um, other people, Mm -hmm. be it health care, and in particular the subjects coming up now with the demographic, care of the elderly. Mm -hmm. The volunteering numbers that we managed to find, as I said, were explicitly excluded relative care, but that's another vast area where... Uh, people don't have training for, for what they do, so not everything is very um, um, effective. Um, I think there needs to be... I think people ought to be able to make a distinction and say, actually, I'm giving my time now without monetary compensation. I think people ought to be, uh, legally be allowed to make that distinction, um, and it's not very expensive for organisations to organise certain kinds of insurances, but those people who are asking for volunteers do have some obligations towards training, towards safety, mm-hmm. and some mm-hmm. certain minimum standards. Um, like a lot of activities, this is a subject of some debate, and by and large, as ever, the debate is healthy because the subject gets, gets revisited as our mores change over time.
0: Okay. And I'm going to ask the audience a question uh, to uh, Start Things Going. Um, I want to ask you a very simple question, and the subject is money laundering. <laughs> if, the, if the world or your local community, let's take your local community, if there is a serious problem in your local community about keeping children out of care, let's say, as an example, and a very, very rich individual with a very dodgy track record offers to provide all the funding to enable that to happen, is that unacceptable and unutopian or do we welcome gifts from people whose mores don't quite up to live up to our personal standards? We'd like to have a go at trying to answer that. Sir? Sure. So. Yeah. Yeah. You, you don't think it matters what their background is? If they've got the money and the problems there, you'll take the money.
1: Child trafficking.
4: Yeah, they to, yeah. yeah they they Child,
1: tra- tra- child tra- trafficking. Child trafficking has tra- been
0: offered tra- from the front. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not declared on their tax return, and that's. Yeah, that well, you know, child labour.
1: Yeah. Child, yeah. child yeah. labour. And child yeah, and their mines
4: that. that they run yeah. somewhere else that you don't have to see.
8: <laughs> yeah, At the back. I just, yes. <laughs> if I have to. Uh... Against okay, so that, can, yeah. I, for me, I would start from a very simple place where, you know, yes, we can talk about symptoms and solving symptoms, absolutely. You know, um, if people leaving care is is a, an issue, we need to solve that problem as quickly as we can for those people that are leaving that. But on a, a kind of bigger point of analysis, we have to look at the entire system that's creating people going into care, that's creating a set of values, ethics, whatever, whereby that's, you know, permissible... Where, there, where there's a gap that's needing money to be you know, filled into it. And, and on that analysis, I start to wonder where this you know, money laundering individual plays into that system. And I suppose that reminded me of the thing that Caroline said, very, almost like a throwaway comment right at the start of her speech around what, what is philanthropy? Is philanthropy just a question of the people with the big checks? Mm-hmm. Or is it actually much more a question of how we each and all transact with each other in, in these kind of systems we live in. Can I
0: try and answer that for the purposes of tonight? For the per- And it happens to be my, my own take on it. For me, philanthropy is about private contributions to the public good. And that can be private contributions by individuals or corporates, and the contributions can be time, talent, treasure, or even body parts. If, 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 I can, if you want to take one thing away from tonight, read Professor Titmuss' book written in the 1960s about the phenomenon that was blood donations that just came out of nowhere and people started pouring blood out of their own bodies in response to the, uh, in response to the uptick. In cardiological expertise, absolutely fascinating book. You might want to skip the bits on different types of blood.
2: Tom, Tom, do you, do you want to do a show of hands of whether yeah. from people as to whether the source of money is, re- is okay. relevant? Okay. Who thinks relevant? the source of money is relevant?
0: Uh, so, you're, who 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 um, who's done a sponsored bike ride, walk, or something similar lately? Cure! Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
7: That's brilliant.
0: You have well done. <laughs> right, come to the second lecture on leading from the front. <laughs> when I was running Marie Curie, I undertook to raise my own money, raise my own salary every year by doing a sponsor something in a ghastly place. If anybody wants to bicycle with me from Estonia to St Petersburg, I really recommend that one for pure hell, madam.
7: In, in answer to your question um, about caring about how virtuous the source of money is,
1: I believe the media really are a big part of the problem, because you can just see it, you know, the children replacing the children's home with something more uh, compassionate, sustainable. The Daily Mail gets a hold of it, and, you know, if there's any whiff of scandal about the guy, it will be destroyed. So maybe charities have to be a bit more... Um, uh, defiant, if they are accepting money from fairly
7: dubious but not really tainted sources.
0: So, would would put your hand back up if you had it up when we asked about it earlier, right? Right. Those who cared about where the money came from. So, would you take money from Rockefeller? Yes. would you? So, Congress turned down his original application to start the Rockefeller Foundation. They weren't happy with the way start oil were operating. So it, 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 that's your very point. That's, anyway, I'm not sure we get, should go too far down this line. But I was just interested. Who well, was? Is it General Booth who I said we should we, take their money when well, he started the starvation? I think
1: there's a more hopeful way of looking at this, actually.
7: Yeah. Um, Good. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Before we get mired into this, uh, which is actually this rise of the idea that actually you know we can earn our money, we can spend our money we can invest our money and we can give our money away. And actually the choices that we make about how we do that and where we do that um, are are very positive now and they're increasingly positive. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the idea that you can really care about the environment but put all your money into fossil fuels, that kind of thinking is, is Mm. is being destroyed or ripped apart and actually there are lots of things emerging where there are really interesting ways of using money for in a purposeful way. And can I just give a very, very small example something that we do? It's a very small example, but it's very elegant, I think, and I think it could catch on. Um, And it's our land purchase agreement. And um, what we do is when a piece of land comes on the open market, that's a very, very high conservation value, we have arrangements with the Wildlife Trust, the the, uh, RSPB and the Woodland Trust, where we buy that land um, and we lease it to them um for two years and they and we charge them two percent to borrow our balance sheet and they have two years with which to raise the money to pay us back um plus the legal fees um and we can turn around very quickly and buy that land they can't so and we've done that now 15 times now that's now that's actually a really really interesting way of using finance to do something really good so I think there's going to be more and more of that where actually maybe we're not going to have to have to make these terrible choices about where did that money come from
0: Thank you, I'm going to take a question in the back there then in the back in the middle and then in a pink shirt on the right here
7: Um, Can I ask a question about something to do with was rather different but which does relate to fundraising uh, awareness getting volunteers and so on and that is the role of celebrities. Yeah. Um, that, in my well, because I'm old, like Dr. Brooks, there I can remember <laughs> when celebrities, <laughs> when celebrities were not down. quite uh, de rigueur. Uh, so necessary it seems to be associated with uh, uh, with charities. Um, so the question is, what does the panel think of this? If I'm right, increasing trend. Um, Does it, for instance, detract from the actual issues that the charity wishes to raise? And is there a competition between charities as to who gets the best celebrities and the ones who perhaps get the most prominent celebrities then get the most money, awareness and volunteers uh, to the detriment of those who are less enterprising in that respect? And I believe, well, I've heard that some charities, correct me if I'm wrong, have specialised departments or people who are involved in wrangling, I think the term is, celebrity wrangling, (laughs) that is getting hold of them, uh, in order to achieve the objects of the charity.
0: Rebecca, you've probably got some of these people as your clients, so uh, (laughs)
4: Uh,
0: do you want to have a go at answering that?
4: I was just thinking, I once went to the most extraordinary event. It was for a large British charity that specialises in wrangling celebrities. Um, <laughs> and they, they do, they have, a, they have a team that does exactly what you said. But this, this event was um, auctioning plates that had been painted oh, yeah. by celebrities. God knows why I had to go. Uh, I just, um, but, it, you know, I had to go. So I went, And they were auctioning these plates that had been badly painted by celebrities. <laughs> and the room was full of celebrities. And, of course, the celebrities didn't want the plates that the other celebrities had painted. <laughs> <laughs> it was a total disaster. But, I mean, but seriously, I think... The, the situation with famous people being involved with causes depends very much on the famous person and how really involved they are with the cause mm. and how mm. useful they are, how knowledgeable they mm. are. If you are fortunate enough to work, with as a, to, have a, to work with a famous person and famous people really do sell things and they know about the issue and they can talk eloquently about it and they are really properly involved... Then that's just that's good. That just gives you an additional spokesperson in the way that you would have a spokesperson who was a government minister or an eloquent CEO, and it will just get you some visibility. As a general rule, though, my experience is that um, there are people I talk to. A lovely lady whose name I can't remember, but she's famous in, in, in some kind of world of, of, of people who were younger than Rory, um, and, and, um, Thank you. and younger than me. Well, my, my
2: oh, oh, sorry. Um, she's on my side.
4: And the uh, and and she said, you know, so I do. My PR agency arranges for me to go and um. be photographed at events to raise money for charity and that's what, mm. that's what I do for my charitable giving, I do being photographed mm. and that's, that's terribly know. sad, Rory. that's rubbish <clears throat> I
2: mean, The first question I would ask is why would a person who has fame raise money for, be successful in raising money for anything in this case a charity, for which they have no connection, that says something about our appreciation mm. of people more than anything else, that yeah. seems to me as being slightly yeah. odd yes. um, my wife Elizabeth and I attended a presentation by the head of Oxfam International. It was brave of her last week because, actually, her husband was standing in the Ugandan presidential election at the time. And is I she that got your asked. Your wife me, or no, no,
0: no,
7: no.
2: <laughs> the? Mercifully, my wife came last in that election. Um, but uh, she was asked this very question, and she said, "The means justify the end. If they raise us money, we'll do it." And it was a very, very pragmatic response.
4: Mm. But isn't that like the money laundering?
2: But I, I've, Yeah, you know, because I, like, you and I, sir, I'm from generation. I, 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 I think you'll be I'm very shocked by this. I, I, I thought I, we were I, in I, a free I, world.
1: I, well, but also, I think where <laughs> it can work really, really well is in taboo busting. Yeah. Actually, yeah, when, when somebody who's very, very famous stands up and says, actually, I suffered mental health, or yes. I suffered. That's that, that for really me really is when. There is a direct connection, or you know, and, and I think that is when there is a genuine connection and a genuine cause, a link, and I think that works, that, that can work very well. And it's actually quite helpful sometimes. So just to give celebrities some sense. I stuff. mean, the yes. thing
8: is,
0: I'm we love
6: liberate. celebrities. Yeah.
0: We, we love celebrities. It doesn't matter whether you like the fact that we love celebrities or not, but yeah, the vast majority of people love celebrities slash role models, Uh, And uh, the biggest amount of money I ever raised was £285 million in one go. The generous donor was Gordon Brown, the Prime Minister, when I managed to get Hugh Grant onto breakfast time complaining about the fact that palliative care wasn't funded by the government. Four weeks later, we got £285 million. Hugh's mother died in our care. So I, I think if there is a connection, we shouldn't underestimate the power but I, do, I think where the crossover comes is when it's solely to augment mm-hmm. their own yeah. profile. And then I think you're into a you different... What about
7: the competition? Charities compete. Yeah, yes. And maybe yes. they they, the ones who get the celebrities get the money and the charities that don't get the celebrities are, you know, disadvantaged.
2: Well, I'm, I'm unseemly but sadly successful. Yeah.
1: That's
7: true. Yeah.
2: I think that, that is true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sir? So. Thank you. And uh, I think uh, for those who have read Dr. McCaskill's book, it really is a fantastic uh, piece of work on how to, it really made me kind of rethink how I should, how I should think about, about giving. And Are you a first
0: cousin or a student?
5: <laughs> <laughs> if only aging. I don't have the grades. Yeah. <laughs> and,
2: and the idea of applying a metric to giving, I think, w- w- is very helpful, but how does that work for, like, a, for example, a charity which is an opera company or a contemporary dance company who are in the business of um, providing inspiration, less measurable? Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah. William. Okay, terrific. I mean, I think you can, like, I think if you're donating to opera or theatre companies, you're not doing it for a framework, on the basis of a framework that is kind of what effective altruism promotes, where but you could do it, you could look at it through that lens, so mm-hmm. you 'd want to say, "Okay, how much am I donating? how much additional how many additional people will be going to the opera going to the theater as a result of this, um, and how much of a um, benefit are they getting out of that um, and you can quantify that last thing as well by um, thinking about like the length of the impact it has or in their willingness to pay, so like how much would they be willing to pay for this um, and i 'm pretty confident if you did all the numbers then. The amount would be very small compared to donating to, you know, £2,000 saving a child's life in um, Africa and so on. Um,
2: so should, I think, should Rebecca's client
3: not donate to, to theatre?
5: So the question's what's optimal for them to do in terms of improvements in people's lives. If they're aiming to improve people's lives as much as they can, then it would be a mistake to donate to the opera. Um... <laughs> I mean, this has got to be the case. Although,
4: so. here's the thing. So, <laughs> Sorry, I'm good no, no. Yeah, so we all, we all have to talk about this. So I, I have a famous friend who's called Kate who, you know, who who's not famous to anybody in this room except possibly us. Um, and she used to be the BBC's war correspondent
7: yeah,
4: know, um, for a long time. She spent a lot of time in conflict zones. And she said one of the first things that people do before they start rebuilding their houses is they form community choirs. And she said she's seen it over and over again. And it's the, it's, she, and she kind of, you know, her analysis of it was that people need to, A, forget what they're going through, and B, get themselves into a state of mind where they can then rebuild. And music is the way that she saw them doing it. Um, and so to say that. It's kind of really difficult because it's a whole different measures. And if you kind of put a gun to my head, I would say, don't give any money to the opera; give it to save the child's life. But you can't say that culture has no value. So it's yeah.
0: not
5: about culture; it's about who you're.
0: Talking I'm going to stop, so stop you. I'm going to stop you, madam. Sorry, individual know? three in.
5: <laughs> I want to make sure we get lots of questions.
0: Carry on. You guys have had your turn. Yeah
1: sorry i um, just in response to that, as somebody who 's worked a lot in the cultural world I would yes, say that, together <laughs> yes, i 'd say that it is of course always possible to measure everything, even in the, um, in the world of culture and the impact that that ha- might have on our society on people 's lives. but surely the issue about philanthropy is that it 's not state funding, so therefore it 's up to the individual to follow their own passion and interests and to make their decisions, which is why we need philanthropy alongside um, state support, why the two um, are separate and all the better for it. That's my opinion anyway.
0: Anybody else on this point? Uh, in, the, in the back, white right shirt.
2: One down here. Yeah,
0: in a moment. I want, the, I want
5: audience <laughs> interaction here.
0: and conducting
3: the choir. <laughs> Just coming back to the issue of the source of funds. And, um, I mean, isn't, isn't philanthropy the act of giving, but it's also a moral contract, the act of receiving? And there needs to be a contract between the two parties, the receiver, and we were talking earlier about it has to be in the eye of the receiver. And society will determine whether it wants to take that money from a bad source and ultimately, that's the, the logic which follows that, you know, if, you're, if you have somebody from uh, disreputable, then, then society will determine whether it wants to receive those funds. It's not just all about the giving. It's a contract. Yeah, yeah. And maybe the bigger question is, in this world, when we have ultra-rich and ultra-poor, why is that? Mm. Yes,
0: absolutely. As we now know from the NHS statistics today... If we're in the top 1%, we'll live to a 98 which I think is a terrifying statistic. (laughs) Anyway, yes. um, I will now allow you in, Caroline, before we move on from culture.
1: So, um, can I say two things? Um, One is just, uh, there was a very uh, interesting uh, priest in the 70s in Brazil called Câmara, and his very, very famous quote was, when I gave the poor food, they called me a saint. When I asked why the poor had no food, they called me a communist. So, um, <laughs> just, um, uh, he was yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, but just to talk about art again, because I just wanted to reiterate that um, we, we have a whole stra- a whole a whole priority area which is art as an instrument for social change, and art can be used in a way that's extraordinary. So, uh, for very very angry young men who otherwise would fall out of the system, use performing arts as an anger anger management tool, and actually end up by becoming becoming performing artists. That's a really, really interesting way of taking young boy young, young men who would absolutely fall out of the system and turn them into, into engaged uh, people. We've done something for Art City Stoke, which is working with the local authority and the university to regenerate the center of Art Stoke going back to its heritage and it, which is around um, building um, a whole, a whole community part, a community arts center, if you like. Right in the middle of Stoke, so that people from leaving universities, the Stafford University, don't actually come to London, they've actually got somewhere to go to. You start using arts as a tool for regeneration. So, I think the idea that art and culture are just a thing that people go and watch is not, there are incredibly dynamic and incredibly diverse tools. It's what you do with them that, that counts.
9: Blue shirt at the back. Thank you. On the very same point, so I've read again, um, I've read um, Dr. McTaschel's book again. I thought it was uh, very.
3: Close to your mouth.
9: Sorry, I thought it was great. And one of the things that struck me the most was the that it says that because of there is so much difference between poor countries and rich countries, um, the the difference that you can make in in a in a man's life, in, a, in people's life with the same amount of money is uh, so much greater in poor countries. So I was wondering um, perhaps to hear your comments on the idea that um, money and uh, philanthropy should focus more on poor countries rather than rich countries such as the UK. So the, I'm going to. So the, the question
0: is this given that prof mccaskill in his book makes the point that you can save lives at a much lower cost in poorer countries uh, why do we spend any money in the developed world Uh, why don't we focus all our philanthropic giving for those who are poorest Uh,
5: yeah so just kind of clarifying on that so Rory, I'm going to ask you to answer second, to put you on your matter. uh, Financially speaking, we're about, even like typical people in the UK, are about 100 times richer than the poorest 600 million people in the world. Mm -hmm. And that means you can do about 100 times as much to improve their lives as you can to improve our lives. Um, And even the poor, like basically everyone in the UK is in the richest 10% of the world's population. Mm -hmm. And this kind of relates to the earlier, like the arts and so on. It's not really about... Are we funding the arts or are we funding something else? But who the beneficiaries are. Mm-hmm. If you're funding the opera, you're funding the arts, but you're also just trying to benefit people who are relatively well off in one of the richest countries in the world. Whereas the case of choirs and war torn countries like if I one of the things I recommend is give directly, which shouldn't be transferring yeah. cash. Yeah. If they want to then spend the money on art, fine. I'm totally happy with that. If that's the best yeah. way that they want to improve their lives. So the question is just about yeah, the beneficiaries. And so in answer to your question, you know, my answer is yes.
0: So can I challenge back and say maybe that's rather a simplistic view that you're both taking here. Uh, I have been campaigning for 12 years to make a painful death uh, against human rights, right? And uh, some of the worst health care in terms of -of end-of-life care is in the developed world. So this would mean in quite comparatively wealthy countries like Brazil and Mexico... People will die in great pain on that basis, and we'll focus our care in Uganda and Kerala, two of the countries with the best palliative care in the world. So I I personally think sometimes that this economic uh, formula for where to give is slightly too simplistic, because there are conditions and problems we face as human beings that have got F all to do with money. And you really want to discriminate those who are in great, great pain but happen to be elderly or lonely in a world that is, you think, is rich? Which do you think has the highest incidence of maternal death? Rural Pakistan or Alabama? It's Alabama. Alabama. Which has the highest payday loan rate in the world? Detroit or Pakistan? Detroit. So I just think we've got to be slightly careful about just saying it's only the poor who have
2: challenges.
0: Does anyone... roaring?
2: <clears throat> well, I think... Um in the 60s or 70s, John Singer put out the argument that uh, a need anywhere has moral equivalence, that the need of somebody a long way away is the same as the need on your doorstep. But I think that human, humanity is different from that. Despite the fact that the explosion of the media have greatly shrunk the world, Francis Cairncross's famous statement, the death of distance... The point is that we still, there's still a radius of care and that we will still respond to the need that is immediately on our doorstep and most especially inside our own families and that the, no matter how much the media bring it to us, the incidence of need further away just calls upon us less. And there is something about philanthropy and giving, going back to your point, which is immensely local, immensely immediate and therefore doesn't think very hard, if I may say so, Will, about the ferocious equations you're producing about uh, um, o- total impact. I think it's a bit more messy than that, and I think we should be grateful for it being a bit more messy. Caroline?
1: Well, I also think um, sometimes there are things that we can do which are more systemic. So one of the reasons why people say in Bangladesh are so poor is because we expect T-shirts for 99p,
7: mm-hmm.
1: and we're not prepared to pay more for them. We, you know, we want... Hundred t-shirts at ninety nine p, rather than five t-shirts at three pounds. So one of the things that philanthropists can do is challenge. Again, talking about philanthropy, mm-hmm. actually is challenge um, our worldview because when we talk about changing the world, the world we always think it's somebody else's world that has to change. It's never ours. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. where's the challenge to ourselves that say maybe we're causing that poverty mm-hmm. in Bangladesh mm-hmm. by our mm-hmm. behaviour and what can we do? And I think philanthropy in terms of can and the can also do that in a way that maybe governments can't.
0: I'm going can to take two questions at the back in a very nice shirt uh, and then on the end uh, with a, <laughs> 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 you
1: <know,
6: you're laughs> a beard. <laughs> well, well. um, <laughs> wow, this is interesting. So uh, I wanted to k- kind of ask a question slash say something about what you are just saying about the circle of care. Sorry. The other you. Um, so um, little plug, these effective altruist thinking groups exist at different universities, so that's where I'm from, Imperial. Look it up at LSE, it's kind of existing. Come find us. Um, but one of the ideas, because I've been struggling with this as well, is that what about instead of helping the people you know, if we had an emphasis of getting to know the people that you could help the most? Yeah. So this is a, like, different kind of... Your circle is only as big as the people you know, oh, but I if you... That. <laughs> anyway, because... It's completely true that um, they might be 100%, 100 times poorer, but it doesn't mean that we can actually necessarily do 100 times more good unless we know them, right? Yeah. Unless we know more about them. So those are the sort of two question comments that I wanted to put out there.
0: Okay. So it's getting to know the individual almost or the community that you're supporting.
6: Yeah, I suppose as a question. It's more like if we could do it that way, would that solve this problem of the circle? Would we want to do that kind of? change our network to be not just physical space, but a different kind of space. Fantastic. Uh,
3: Yes. Hey. Um, So I broadly think that effective altruism is the way to go, Uh, but it seems like the metric that you use to quantify the effect of your altruism becomes a very crucial point. And uh, some of the things you've been hearing about, you know, the great value of volunteering Uh, In the UK, I suspect that if you sit down and and calculate the sort of the dallies, it's not very good. But the value that those individuals personally extract from being involved and the value that we as a community extract from being other people who are interested in doing this thing um, seems a little bit hard to quantify, but not impossible by any means. Um, And so to finish with a sort of thought experiment, is it more utopian to have a society where one or two people do an enormous amount of good or is it more utopian to have a society where we all do a little bit of good, mm. even if the ultimate impact is not as great?
4: That's my Desmond Tutu quote. Mm. That's what Desmond Tutu yeah. said. Let's,
3: I'm just going to take behind
0: you. Um,
6: I mean, I'm very, really passionate about philanthropy, but do you think we should be considering a bit more about tax? Um, because you mentioned <laughs> at good. the beginning that there are a whole swathe of people who never give at all, yeah. and you know, there could be a huge impact on helping the poor and the, you know, the ill and everybody else. If 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 there was a fairer tax system, both in this country and in other developed countries.
0: Okay, so let let's take those two points. Uh, who wants to deal with the, the tax, uh, Rebecca? Uh, I'm sure <laughs> you know, J.P. Morgan don't give advice on <laughs> tax. tax avoidance, but let, tell us what do you feel about this tax point.
4: But also on the... Because no, of, no, no. No. I hard, but no. the, also there was something more interesting as well. No. I think. But I, Yes, well, I think you're, I mean, I think you're right. The, the, the interesting thing is, you know, you kind of move between the 37 and the 44%, and we're, we're a kind of middle state, and there are other pe- countries that tax less or tax more. But the interesting thing is what do you feel is the role of the state and what do you feel is the role of the individual and, and does the individual have something to add? I think where you get into a, a sad place is where you start to say actually individuals can't do anything mm-hmm. um, and um, I think it was you who was telling me Tom that after we brought in, after we introduced the welfare state and we said okay so we're, we're stopping giving individually, yeah. we're going to we're going to pay tax and, th- and that is going to substitute for the things that we used to do and that's great and we all bought into that churches stopped and faith groups stopped doing the volunteering and the community outreach work and that is a, obviously a massive loss and needs to happen all the time so you kind of have to work out what the balance is where do you want where, what, what do we philosophically feel is the value of individuals to our community and how do we Assuming that we believe that individuals have a value um, in what they do, what they give and the time they give, how do we encourage that Um, and where do they start squeaking and stop? So, you know, you kind of have to... You're constantly playing around with these things, not black or white, I don't think.
0: And uh, the gentleman's point uh, on... Will?
5: Yeah, I just on the regards to the volunteering and the impact you have, I basically think that's exactly right with respect to volunteering... Um, so it's hard to be in the UK to be a really high-impact volunteer because the causes you can volunteer for are those that um, affect others in the UK. Which, um, as we said, I think you should be and help others abroad in general. But you can have a big impact on yourself. So I was a volunteer for nine years with a scout group for disabled children in Glasgow. Had an enormous impact on my life. I went and taught English at a school in Ethiopia in the of the summer during a. Uh, my undergraduate degree probably didn't do much good. Myself could have had a bigger impact in the short term by um, uh, just donating the cost of the flights, I think. But again, it was like very important for me to actually experience the lives of the extreme poor up front. And so, um, yeah, I think that's the way to approach volunteering: um, is to think like this is a step, one step on the journey for me mm-hmm. towards using like the eighty thousand hours of my time to make the world a better place.
0: I'm going to bring us to a close now because it, it is 8.30 and we, we have, I promised the organisers we'd close on time uh, I'm just going to make a couple of points in closing um, first of all thank you to all of you um, I, think, I think our eloquent speakers have really said to us that utopia is a dream uh, and probably too difficult because it can't be uh, it can't live in isolation but they've talked about some things that I I find very uh, um, exciting. We heard about philanthropy empowering people. We heard about it being ingenious. And I certainly reflect that in this world of philanthropy and charity, one of our great strengths is we can take risk Mm. in a way that public services can't. So running Marie Curie, I could take risks that I also, my other job is I chair the hospitals from Westminster to Heathrow. And in that environment, it's much harder for me to take risk as the chairman of an NHS organisation. Because I get a prisoner apart from me, and I really don't want to do that. Although there are very good charities supporting prisoners.
7: So.
4: <laughs> <laughs> we, also,
0: we also heard from Rebecca about philanthropy done well. And I think that also fits incredibly well with what Williams talked about, which is... there's a very good piece in his book where he says, would you just go into a shop and just give them money without actually finding out whether that was buying you a shirt or anything else? So I think philanthropy uh, being done well uh, is also really important. But I really wanted to end actually with Rory's point around compassion and passion. Because I actually think that we miss something, and you picked this up so well at the end, Individual with a beard. Uh, 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 I absolutely promise the organisers I wouldn't refer to men or women. So, I, so I, but I wasn't sure whether the beard was okay or not. But I've gone with it. I've taken a bit of a stab uh, on the hope that there are some bearded ladies here too. Anyway, so so uh, uh, I have now finally been fired from the London School of Economics. Anyway, uh, I wanted to make the point that I think giving is a three-way transaction. I I feel really passionately about this, there is the impact on the giver, whether it's giving of time, money, or talent. And actually, if there's no impact on the beneficiary, or it's neutral, but it's not negative, but the giver becomes a better member of society, I personally think that is effective philanthropy. If it has no impact on the giver but it has an impact on the charity, i.e. the intermediary, and helps them build their pipeline of expertise within their own organisation, but it has no impact on the final recipient, I think it's still effective philanthropy. And then sometimes you give money without really knowing why you've done it, without having any wish to measure it at all, and the recipient does brilliantly. And the best example for my own giving of that was my wife came up to me at her charity reception and said, you loathe ballet. I said, true. She said, why have you just given £10,000 to the Association for Distressed Ballet
7: Dancers?
0: And I said, gee, I don't know. (laughs) So I I don't know if it was impactful, effective or anything else, but I did it. And when I, reflect, when I reflect on the last four gifts I've given, and then we're going to close, I don't want to tell you what the last four things I've done. Are. I've basically decided I, I started life relatively poor, and I seem to be at 61 rather rich, and I intend to die relatively less rich. So I'm giving it away as fast as I can. In America, they call it fly fast because if not, the kids. will. Sorry, that's right, fly fly club because if they fly private because if not, the kids will. So the the so I'm giving it away. So my children aren't going to get. It. So the last four things I've given were as follows. I've just given 750 people 20 pounds each. They they are beneficiaries of an organisation called My Bank, run by the brilliant Lily LaPena, which helps young people learn how to budget, how to manage their budgets between the ages of about 15 and 20. So we're now taking on to a new stage, which is to create small social enterprises with a working capital of £20. So I've given them £15,000. I don't know what the impact's going to be, but I'm going to learn a hell of a lot. And I've also offered to mentor some of these kids. And my plan is to ask LSE students to also mentor them and help them think it through so I can make a better London School of Economics I'm going to have a lot of fun, and hopefully the kids will get some good out of it too. The second one is a group called the Renaissance Foundation, who are based in the east end of London. These are street kids who can only meet in neutral postcodes. And basically they're trying to regain their confidence to get into society. Again, I can't measure the impact of my gift, but I'm backing their leader, who's a young Asian guy, street guy, not entirely... Uh, Now you might be tweeting, I'll leave that bit. But he is turning his life around and the people around him. I'm getting something out of it because I love being with these girls and guys, and I hope they'll get something out of it. And the third one was very simple. On Saturday, I was in our cottage in Suffolk, and our neighbour, who does not have a lot of money, who's just moved into the tiny little cottage next to us, said to me, would you sell me a bit of land? so I can have a kitchen garden. And I thought, no, I must, this is philanthropy, actually. And this is a professional guy, but he hasn't got a lot of dosh. And he's got some very expensive kids. So I've given him the lad. Uh, I've <laughs> given it to him. And I can't tell you how much pleasure it's given me to give to him. And he, he, he was quite surprised. <laughs> so was my wife. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, since we're sitting here in the Wolfson Theatre... Yeah. Let's just remember that Lord Wilson, great Glaswegian businessman who came down to London and has given away all this money, the state would not have provided this Bells and Whistles theater in which you've enjoyed yourselves tonight. At least I hope you have.
7: And thank you for coming. Good night)